Man, I just love the hearts of our people and just the way the Lord is using them. Just incredible things happening in our junior high and our youth ministry. And uh, we're just excited about what God has for the youth and the future generations of GT. And uh, it should be uh, great to see how he moves in power in their lives over the next few years. So, well, good morning. It's so good to have you with us joining, whether you're in person here or online. The Spirit of the Lord is here. He is doing incredible things in our midst. And uh, it's been quite the week. It's been quite the week in many, many ways. And I'm not referring to NCAA basketball this time. I'm... Uh, my team got eliminated first round, but I am just referring to so many things that have been transpiring around uh, just uh, our, our context here, but also within our connections and my connections as well. Um, if you are new, my name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at GT, and we're just honored that you would worship with us. We believe the Spirit of the Lord is doing just beautiful things, and as we continually submit to His leading, He knows what people need every time we gather. And that's something that we pray all the time. We come together, we want to do things with a spirit of excellence, but we want to do things more importantly with a spirit of sensitivity, that the spirit is here to meet with his people and to move in the hearts and lives of his people. And so every, every week before we come out here on the stage and, and lead and worship and preach the word, we gather together and we just pray, Holy Spirit, come and move in the hearts and lives of your people. You know what they need more than we know what they need. And so we just trust his leading and his guiding. Well, um, this morning I'm really excited because we are starting a brand new series, and we are going to be in the book of Daniel, just kidding, we're going to be <laughs> in the Gospels for the next few weeks, uh, starting a series called Journey to the Cross, really looking at the week prior to Jesus' crucifixion as we kind of lead up to Easter. Um, and so I'm really excited about that, then we'll have Easter Sunday together, then we're going to have three weeks after Easter where we're going to look at the post-resurrection accounts, where uh, Jesus, in that short time that he has before he ascends into heaven, he goes and he pursues several of his followers to really um, build them up, to restore them, and to remind them of the great calling that they have on their lives. And so this week and next week, obviously with Palm Sunday, we're going to look at a couple events in the Gospels. But before I get to the text here today, I want to I want to open up with this question, and it's, it's honestly a question I've been meditating a lot on over the last um, week because of some events that have happened. And it's not a question that I, I want to say to be morbid or dark in any way, but it's something that I've been really, really thinking about. And the question is simply this, if you knew you had one week to live, what would be the essential things that you would want to accomplish or say to those closest to you? If you knew you only had one week to live, what are the essential things that you would want to do or say or model to those closest to you? And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at the last, uh, the last week of Jesus and some of the essential things that he said, some of the essential things that he declared, some of the things that he modeled. I say that this morning with a little bit of a heavy heart because we've been in a season where it does feel like there's been a lot of death around us. You know, just a couple weeks ago, um, we, we celebrated the life of a great saint here at GT and Lynn Campbell and, and just uh, one of the, the head people in our prayer team that ministers so many decades effectively in this church. And, and you know, in that context, it was something that the doctors had made the announcement and, and, and Lynn and Doug had been preparing for and we had the opportunity to sit and really just kind of lay out what are the things you want to say at your celebration of life? What are the things that you want to do in the next week? What are the, uh, the things you want to give to your family in, in this time? So there was a preparation for it. This past week, as many of you are aware, we had an email that went out, and um, the Reverend Lori Gibbons uh, passed away 
just unexpectedly. Pastor Lori was the Western Ontario District Superintendent uh, for quite some time. He's been in the district office for quite a while as well. Uh, several months ago, I had the privilege of having Pastor Lori here, and he actually installed me here at GT on behalf of the Western Ontario District. And, and he just retired January 31st, I believe, was his last, uh, last day as this district superintendent. And so he just handed off the reins, retired, and then here in March, just unexpectedly this past week, um, just went to bed and did not wake up. And just tragic news. I'm friends with his son, Benton, who's a pastor in St. Thomas, a young minister. And it just has really hit the family in an incredible way. And then yesterday, um, a dear friend of mine, a pastor from San Antonio, a friend that I had preached in my church in Bloomington, probably six or seven times, um, 40, just late 40s, uh, passed away in a car accident unexpectedly. And so um, Warren was an incredible preacher. We, we nicknamed him the Prince of Preachers. He was kind of like Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He, he preached some of the most powerful messages I've, I've ever heard in my life. And he did so much to pour into our, our body there in Bloomington. And, and uh, three young girls, just like me, and uh, just unexpectedly passed away in a uh, tragic car wreck. And so I asked that question this morning, not just as a question to open up the message, but I, I asked it with a heavy heart because, it, I'll be honest, it's on the forefront of my mind. I'm not trying to get us all depressed over this, but it's, it's something that, for whatever reason, God is allowing a season upon us where we are seeing uh, these unexpected deaths happening over and over and over again. And for me, it always helps me to realign and to reprioritize, Tim, what are the essential things that you're committed to in your life? This life on earth is but a vapor, it's but a moment, that we are not guaranteed eternity here on earth, we are guaranteed eternity with Jesus if we follow him and put our faith in him. And so it really causes us to evaluate um, just those things uh, in our lives. Well, this morning I want us to stand for the reading of God's word. And we're going to be looking at John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8 here this morning. John writes, and he records this event, it says, six days before the Passover, so essentially a week, a week before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of the, those reclining with him at the table. And Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. This is the word of the Lord. We may be seated here this morning. Now, in these eight verses here in John's gospel, we are introduced in this narrative here to two different characters, that being one of Mary and the other one being that of Judas. Now, real quickly, just a little bit of context of this passage about this story. 
It's interesting to note that all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, actually mention a story of Jesus being anointed by a woman, though many of the details will vary. Now, I tend to lean in the camp that we know for sure, I believe, that Matthew, Mark, and John are all describing the same event. In Luke's gospel, there's an event described, but the details vary tremendously. But I do, I do believe that many scholars are able to actually harmonize these events to show how they are actually all the same event. Now, in John chapter 11, Jesus has just performed an incredible miracle of which he has now raised a man who was dead called Lazarus and brought him back to new life. And we must understand that the magnitude of this miracle, it actually causes Jesus' fame to begin to spread throughout the whole region, and it's actually becoming a threat to the religious elites of his day, a group known as the Pharisees. In fact, from this point forward, the Pharisees, they will begin to plot to how they can kill Jesus so that he doesn't raise up many more followers, thus taking away their power amongst the people, but also their position and status within also the Roman Empire. You see, this Jesus is starting to remind them of a revolutionary, and Rome was not fond of revolutionaries. And so for the Pharisees, they saw Jesus as a threat to their system and the power that they held. And they knew that if Jesus' fame kept growing and increasing, eventually Rome would come in and do what they always do. They would completely stomp out the excitement and the power, and they would kill not just Jesus, but many of the Jewish people as well. Now in John chapter 12, Jesus, he is invited into the house of Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, probably Simon's house, the Pharisee or the leper as it's referred to in other gospels. And they decide to throw a party, they throw a meal for Jesus and his 12 disciples. Just the fact that they have a house big enough to host all these people most likely speaks to their wealth. And I believe we must note this, that we see here in the Gospels and over and over in the story of Jesus that being wealthy in and of itself is not necessarily evil or sinful, but rather what you do with your wealth is what determines what is good and evil. It's like the old analogy I've heard so many people use before. When you look at a brick, do you define the brick as good or evil? Well, the question is not whether the brick is good or evil. The question is always connected to how do we use the brick? If we use the brick to build a hospital to help the sick, then we look at it as a good thing. If we use the brick as a weapon to throw at someone or bonk them upside the head, then we look at the brick as an evil thing. The brick in and of itself is not evil, and in the same way, having wealth or having money in and of itself is not necessarily evil. Now, in John chapter 12, there's a lot of imagery that John writes that would be connected to another story that we see in the Gospels in Luke chapter 10, where we see the story of Martha and Mary, where Martha is consumed while Jesus is in the house with serving Jesus and doing works, and Mary is consumed with adoring Jesus who is present in the house. And so here in John chapter 12, we see both characteristics of service and adoration on display. Now it's interesting to note that at least three times in the Gospels, we actually read about Mary in John chapter 12 
being at the feet of Jesus. We see it in Luke chapter 10. We see it in John chapter 11. And we see it here in John chapter 12. It's actually believed by some scholars she may be the woman in John chapter 7 who is also at the feet of Jesus because she was caught in adultery and brought before Jesus. Now there's debate about that, but we see this pattern over and over again with this Mary person that she always finds herself at the feet of Jesus. Here in John chapter 12, John describes the extravagant act of Mary's anointing Jesus' feet, probably starting with his head and ultimately ending with his feet with many significant details. Number one, we see that it says that she gathered this, this, this jar, this alabaster jar, if you will, of pure nard, and it, it symbolizes this authentic perfume. We also know from this event that, that it was listed to be about worth 300 denarii, which is about a year's wage. It was estimated that the average person in Jerusalem, their average day's wage was one denarii per day. And so if you take away Sabbath, you take away sick days, this was actually about a year's worth of expense that she is using to anoint the feet of Jesus. We also read in John chapter 12 that she used her hair for the anointing. Now we must note this, that a woman's hair was her glory in this culture. She took the very thing that represented her glory and she anointed Jesus' feet, which was a humbling act left only to the most lowly of lowly servants. Because in Jesus' day, they walked around with open-toed sandals. And in the roads, they were full of dirt. Like, I get frustrated when I see all the salt on the roads, and I get it on my shoes, and I start tracking it into my house, or we track it into the church. I get so frustrated with that. Well, in Jesus' day, it wasn't just salt, though there, there would be salt on the dirt roads, but it, it was camel dung. It was donkey dung. It was all kinds of gross things on the road. And so people's feet would become very filthy and dirty. And when they entered into a house, if they were a person of wealth, they would have servants just to wash the feet. And so this woman, Mary, she takes the very thing that represents her glory, her hair, and she takes this expensive gift and she begins to wash the filthy feet of Jesus here in John chapter 12. And then we read that the fragrance of the perfume, it literally filled the whole room. Now, many people have said that this act by Mary was an extravagant devotion of worship to Jesus in this moment. And this word extravagant, it literally means this, to lavish exceedingly, to go beyond reasonability or absurd action to lavish exceedingly, to go beyond reasonability or absurd actions. Have you ever met someone that did something while you were there that you looked at and said, this seems absolutely beyond all reasonability. This seems absolutely absurd. How many people love awkward moments? I love awkward moments. I embrace them. I, I enjoy watching the tension in the room and seeing in a circle of friends when something happens or something's said that's awkward. And I just, everyone's like, what do we do? Where do we go from there? This, is, this was awkward. I love to watch and observe and see how people will respond right? And that's the idea of extravagance. It's absurd at times. And so we must see that in John chapter 12, what Mary does is this absurd action. It was not just, oh, isn't this so beautiful? She's taking her hair and she's anointing the feet of Jesus. No, everyone present in the room is feeling the tension. 
Everyone present in the room is feeling awkward by this extravagance that Mary is demonstrating for the feet of Jesus. What we see in John chapter 12 here is that Mary's extravagant gift, it was, it was pure and authentic. That Mary's act of devotion, it came from a place of authenticity, meaning that it was true worship, it was true devotion. It was something that came from her very inner being, that it was the most beautiful thing that could be put on display because it was the most authentic way for her to show her love and her affection for this Jesus that she had committed her life to. It was a act of worship that made everyone else in the room uncomfortable. It was an act of devotion that made everyone else in the room feel the tension of the moment. I remember years ago, there was a woman in our church who was an expressionate worshiper. You ever met these people before? I'm not just talking about Pentecostal where they raise their hands and collapse every once in a while. She was very exuberant in her worship. And this woman um, would often come to the front of our sanctuary. She would stand front and middle, and the pastors would be standing over to the left here, your right. And I remember many times in worship, I'd be worshiping, and she would get what I would think was a little bit carried away. And I would remember sitting there doing one of these out of the corner of my eye. Dad, I was a youth pastor at the time. Should you shut her down? She's getting a little expressionate. This is awkward. This is distracting. She's going overboard. It's becoming a hindrance to me. And I remember I went and I talked to my mother about it. I said, you know, so-and-so week after week comes up to the front. And if I can be honest, her worship is a little bit distracting. It, it kind of bothers me. I, I was going through a little bit of a season of deconstruction of my own faith and journey and the things in the moving of the Spirit and our expression. And I, it's funny, I actually came full circle out of that. But in the moment, I, I was distracted by her expression, distracted by her extravagance. And my mother said, Tim, if you only knew her story, you would never be asking that question. And I remember it, it, it checked me. Thank God for godly mothers who know how to speak prophetically into, into young kids' lives, right? It checked me. If you only knew her story, you wouldn't be asking that question. Her story was one full of abuse and full of heartache and full of despair and widowed at 46, left with six kids. And kids, some of them serving Jesus and some of them not serving Jesus. One of her kids actually dying from an overdose of drugs. And so week after week, she would come in. And what I thought was extreme, what I thought was overboard, she was just saying, I have nothing else but Jesus. And I have to give my whole heart and my affection and my worship to the Lord that I serve. He is my source of life. In the natural, I have nothing to look forward to. My life has been difficult. But when I gather with the people of God, and I gather with the saints, I will be extravagant and expressionate. And what I learned in that moment, that yes, it was a little over the top for me, but from her source, from her very being, it was authentic and pure. A.W. Tozer once said, my aim each day is to adore God more than anything else. I love that about Tozer. He says, more than anything I do, my aim is that I would simply adore God more than anything else. Secondly, we learn from the story here that Mary's extravagant gift was costly 
and sacrificial. That Mary's act of devotion, it cost her greatly. However, she knew this truth. She knew this principle. She knew that those who have been forgiven much must love much. She had been forgiven so much. She had been given so much opportunity. She had been welcomed into Jesus's inner circle. And so therefore, she must love much. Thirdly, we learn this, that Mary's extravagant gift was humble and it glorified Jesus. That she literally laid aside her dignity and worth in order that she might honor Jesus. It's the imagery here of David when the temple comes back into Jerusalem that he lays aside, he throws aside his garments. He throws aside his representation of royalty and dignity and he begins to dance in an undignified way in celebration for the goodness and faithfulness of God. When was the last time that you and your worship, you did something where you laid aside your dignity, your reputation, your pride, and you responded in such an act of worship that it was, it was humbling, but you knew in this humbling it was bringing glory to Jesus. Fourthly, we see that Mary's extravagant gift was pleasing to Jesus. In fact, John's language of the fragrance filling the whole room, it actually resembles God's glory filling an entire place. Think of the temple. Think of Exodus 40 and 1 Kings 8. And whenever you read in Scripture about the fragrance filled an atmosphere or filled the temple or filled the room, it was always a sign that God was taking delight in what had just transpired. In fact, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, when God creates the, the earth and he forms it, and it says he rests on the seventh day, it's that Sabbath language. It means that he's not just sitting around snoozing, watching Netflix after working hard for six days. No, he's literally taking delight in what has just been formed and created, the earth the cosmos, the entirety of the world. He has developed, he has formed, he has created, and now he's finding it pleasing to take delight. And that's the imagery here that John 12, he uses that this very extravagant act that Mary is committing is something that Jesus is actually taking delight in. And then finally, Mary's extravagant gift allowed her to partner in God's redemptive purposes. You see, little did Mary know that this extravagant act of devotion would be preparation and anointing Jesus for his soon coming death and burial. That we are just about a week away from Jesus being crucified and this act that she's doing from a place of authenticity, from a place of purity of heart, little does she know that she's actually, according to the Jewish custom, actually preparing Jesus for his actual death. That she is getting him ready for what he's about to experience. Now the other thing we see here in John chapter 12 is how upsetting and disturbed this act of extravagant devotion caused the disciples and possibly others present to be. Because I don't know about you, but this is what I always find, that when people respond in extravagance, it always upsets those that are present. When people do things that we feel like are a little over the top or a little eccentric, it always tends to ruffle our, our feathers. And so here in John chapter 12, we see that this extravagant devotion to Jesus, it upsets both the legalists and the liberalists. 
Because both are rooted in self-righteous piety. You see, for the legalists, their thinking is this. This woman, number one, is a woman in a patriarchal society. Who is she to touch Jesus, our teacher, our Messiah, the one, our rabbi that we are following? She is a woman. She is lowly. She has no right to act this way. There's a fundamentalist type of thinking that they are, they are being consumed by. Uh, according to other gospel uh, accounts of this, she is an unclean woman. How dare an unclean woman touch Jesus? And this was a normal pattern for the Pharisees in their way of thinking. Because in the Old Testament, if the unclean touched the clean, the clean became unclean. Oh, beloved, but in the New Covenant, Jesus touches the unclean and the unclean becomes clean, right? And so this is what we're seeing, that in the way of Jesus, he's not intimidated, he's not bothered by that which is unclean or absurd or crazy at times coming and touching him because he knows that, that he is the source of life. He is the one who brings healing. It's just like you and I, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And how often do we get deterred and distracted by the unclean of the world when Jesus says, no, let, let them come, let them come near to me. Because when they come near to me, they, there can be transformation and healing and restoration of life. So for the legalists, this woman is unclean. How dare she defile Jesus with her presence and her actions? But for the liberalists, if I can say it that way, this gift is too expensive. How dare she waste it worshiping Jesus? It should have been used for a more important social action. Now, I want to make note of this, that both holiness and generosity for the poor do matter to God. But when they are done from a self-righteous, pious motivation, more than they are from the true and pure devotion, when they are done more for what status one gets out of it or the feeling that they receive from it, they are displeasing, actually a stench to God. Holiness and generosity matter in the kingdom of Jesus. But if we're trying to live holy or model generosity for what we get out of it, that's not authenticity, that's not, pure, that's not purity, that is selfish motivation. That's self-righteousness. And actually that becomes a very stent to God. I remember years ago in Genesis Church, we, we ran a, a low-barrier homeless shelter. Bloomington, Indiana has a intense homeless population because of all the social programs that exist there. And so Louisville, Cincinnati, Indianapolis, Chicago, they would actually bring many of the homeless community to Bloomington, a college town, a small town, because of the opportunities for food and for housing they had. But in the summer, there would be hundreds upon hundreds of homeless people that were just living on the streets because the winter shelter was shut down. And my, my father, he always, he would get visions and he would say, I feel the spirit leading us. I don't have all the details figured out. Let's just go with the heart of God in this moment. We'll figure it out as we go. And so he decided to lead our church into running a low barrier homeless shelter for our city. We took a burden from the city and we had uh, 10 acres of property at the time. We had an old shelter house and we converted it into a homeless shelter. And so we started housing anywhere from 50 on low nights up to 80 to 90 people a night. 
uh, that would check in, and it didn't matter if they were drunk, it didn't matter if they were high. Uh, we had the women in one section, the men in the other section. We had a whole system for the way it ran, and we did that for three years consistently. Now, we knew that our church didn't have the volunteer base to man this ourselves. We had the financial backing, but we needed volunteers. So we, we opened it up to the community, whether they were Christian or not. And at first, we had all kinds of what I would coin as human secularists that wanted to get involved because we were doing good in the name of humanity. And they were all charged up about, yes, this is what the church should be doing. This is how the church should be using their resources. And I remember those first few weeks, how excited many people that were not Christians were just to be involved in this great social act until they got chewed out by a drunk person until they got cussed out by someone wrestling with mental health issues and having an episode right there at one in the morning, until their life got threatened. And all of a sudden, we started off with this massive volunteer base, but over a few weeks, our volunteer base began to deteriorate, deteriorate, deteriorate. And only the ones that were left after about a month and a half of time were those that professed Jesus as Lord and had the title of Christian on their lives. Because people were excited about doing good deeds more for what they got out of it. Pat on the back. Feel good about my good service. But that's not why we do good deeds. And so I love it here in John chapter 12 that this extravagant act that she commits, it actually, it upsets both the legalists, the self-righteous, the holiness, the fundamentalists, but also the liberalists, the, the one that is, oh, we should just be doing all social acting and helping the poor. And it upsets both categories. Now, when I read this story, I have to be very honest with you. I read what Mary is doing in this moment, and I believe it makes perfect sense when you consider the relation of Mary to Jesus, who she is, her, her past, how she's been forgiven and loved and accepted, how she's been brought into the inner circle of Jesus, how she understands Jesus to be more than just a good teacher, but I believe she's understanding him to be deity, in fact, to be Messiah. How could she not respond in this type of radical commitment? She's been forgiven much. How could she not respond in this extravagant love? I understand that. It makes perfect sense. What does not make perfect sense is that from this moment on, you actually begin to see Jesus model in a greater way the same type of posture of humility and servitude and commitment and devotion and love to his disciples. To a group that were arrogant, selfish, petty, cowardice, and even those that would eventually betray him. You see, in John chapter 13, Jesus, he would actually model this same hum humble act of servitude to his disciples by what? By washing their feet. This same group that would betray him, that would deny him, that would flee his side in his weakest moment, he literally humbles himself as a lowly servant and he begins to wash their filthy feet. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, it said, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Philippians chapter two, verses five through eight, Paul said, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God 
a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I read John chapter 12, and I say, of course Mary responds this way. I read the rest of the gospel leading up to his crucifixion, and I say this makes absolutely no sense. That the Son of God, the eternal one, who has always been, the one that has committed his life to these followers for three years, the, the one who called them out of things and into a new journey of life, and he knows they're going to deny him, they're going to betray him, they're going to leave him in his weakest moment, and now he's going to model just what Mary did moments before. He's going to serve this group of people. It's literally the, the upside-down kingdom that to be powerful— and successful in the kingdom of Jesus only comes through taking on the posture of humility and servitude. That Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, the greatest leader, whether you're a believer or not, the greatest leader ever to influence the world, said, I didn't come to lord my authority over anyone, but I came to serve the least of these but also serve those that would betray me. See, it makes sense for Mary, but beloved, it, it makes absolutely no sense for Jesus. It makes sense for her context, but given his title, his prestige, his position, it makes absolutely no sense. But I believe right here he's modeling one of the essential things of what it means to belong to his kingdom you want power? You want success? You want to belong to my kingdom? Understand this, this is an upside down kingdom. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. That you want to belong to my kingdom, you don't lord your authority, you rather serve those from within. John Stott said this, the very first thing which needs to be said about Christian ministers, and I would say Christians, of all kinds, is that they are under people as their servants rather than over them as their leaders, let alone their lords. Jesus made this absolutely plain. The chief characteristic of Christian leaders, he insisted, is humility, not authority, and gentleness, not power. I love that. He made it plain. The chief characteristic of Christian leaders, he insisted, is humility, not authority, and gentleness and not power. I would propose that our greatest apologetic, I said this on Wednesday night, our greatest defense of the faith is not connected to what we believe and why we believe it, about the resurrection, about the scriptures, about why believing in God makes sense even from a scientific perspective. I believe our greatest defense of the faith in the 21st century in this cultural moment has everything to do with the posture of our heart towards people. Yes, towards one another, but also towards our betrayers, our enemies, the outside. Are we committed to a life of radical servitude to people that we don't, deserve, we don't think deserve to be served? Because this is an essential thing that Jesus models. So some concluding thoughts here this morning. In the same way that Mary's extravagant gift was pure, and authentic 
Jesus came and lived as the most pure and authentic person ever to live. He came and modeled what it meant to be fully human. And to be fully human means that we serve the least of these. We serve the outsider. We serve the unclean. That we model humility in all that we do. That's what it means to be fully human. In the same way that Mary's extravagant gift was costly and sacrificial, Jesus willingly gave his life as the once and for all sacrifice that all of humanity might be made new, might be healed, might be restored back to right relationship with God and each other. Mary modeled it well. Everyone say this, thank God for Mary. Where the boneheaded guys didn't get it right, thank God for a woman who got it right in a hostile culture even towards her gender. And she was resilient in her faith. She was extravagant in her love. And she modeled it. But even though Mary got it right, Jesus got it oh so much more right. In the same way that Mary's extravagant gift was humble and glorified Jesus, Jesus humbles himself and by doing so brought glory to God the Father. And he also pleased God. And in the same way that Mary's extravagant gift partnered with God's redemptive purposes. Jesus came to bring complete fulfillment and completion to God's redemptive purposes. Jesus knew why he came. He was resolute in his determination. I've come to begin the completion of the work of the Father. Mary had no idea that she was prophetically acting. That's what happens when we respond in obedience. That's what happens when we respond in a posture of humility. We actually begin to partner with God's redemptive purposes for the earth. And so I love seeing this character of Mary elevated here in this story. But the second character is the character of, of Judas. One of the 12 that Jesus called to follow him, to be a close companion with him, that he entrusted the wealth and resources as a group with, knowing he was not trustworthy, knowing he was full of ulterior motives, knowing that he would betray him, that he would sell him out for wealth. In fact, the gospel writers, especially John, John, I love John's gospel, but John's the guy that I would probably beat up. because he's, he's the rat. He's always telling other people's sins. He refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. You arrogant little jerk. <laughs> and then over and over again, the one whom Jesus loved arrived first and the others came behind. And here, whenever he talks about Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus, John's intentional to make sure that everyone knows it was Judas who betrayed him. And yet, Jesus would invite Judas to come and share a meal before his crucifixion. To be a part of the group that was being instructed with the understanding of the new covenant requirements. But Judas has a heart so full of personal ambition and opportunity and yet, over and over again, we see the Lord modeling this extravagant, reckless, absurd, crazy love towards him. 
And one of the most powerful examples of this is found in Matthew chapter 26. I want you to stand to your feet. Matthew 26, verses 47 through 50, after they've shared the meal together and Jesus has instilled the act of communion, they go out to the garden and it says this, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him, this act of betrayal. And Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. See, I read John chapter 12 and I say, once again, it makes perfect sense for Mary, given her situation, to respond the way that she does. But, but I read here in Matthew chapter 26 and I think there is no way in the world I could ever respond that way. Friend, you who are about to betray me, you who are involved with Satan's work, though God will redeem it for his glory and purposes, you that have a corrupt, corrupt heart, Jesus calls him friend. So this morning, the big idea that I want us to walk out of here this morning with is simply this. The extravagant love of Jesus is that he came to save both the saints and the sinner. And in fact, he actually calls them both friends. Because maybe you're here this morning, you've been in the church for a long time and some would categorize you of a saint, but what happens with that is when we're in the church for a long time, when we're journeying in this following of Jesus for a long time, it becomes easy for us to become crusted in our heart, become hardened in our heart, to become a self-righteous legalist. And many times new people come in that are newer to the faith and we start to think, well, why do they act like that? Why do they look like that? Why do they dress that way? But we don't know their journey. We don't know their stories. We don't know what they've gone through. And we become very legalistic in our heart. And the gospel reveals that Jesus came as much to save you as he did the other person, the sinner, the person like Mary who had been forgiven so much. But I would also say that Jesus came to save the betrayer. And the truth is, we all fall into that last category many times over. Oh, we may have not have sold Jesus for so many amounts of silver, but how often do we follow Jesus for our own selfish motive and selfish gain and what we get out of it rather than simply for who Jesus is? See, Mary, she understood that. I'm given everything in my worth Everything probably in my savings, my inheritance. I'm given my very dignity and my pride. And I'm giving it to this Jesus for nothing that I get in return just because of who he is. And often if we're truthful with ourselves, we, we fall into the other category. Not to the extreme like Judas, but we fall into the other category. Where we're following Jesus more for what we can gain, the opportunities we get. Because even today in North America, Christianity quickly becomes an add-on to our lives. 
what some call therapeutic moralistic deism. for the therapeutic feeling we get out of it, for the moralistic way of living. But are we modeling the way of Judas? Or are we going to learn what it means to model the way of Mary, to be a people of extravagant response to the Lord that we profess and that we worship? So this morning, I want you to grab your elements. Real quickly, I want us to partake of communion here. If you belong to the church of Jesus, you put your faith, hope in him as Lord, we invite you to partake of the elements. And Jesus, we thank you for your body that was broken for us. And we thank you for your blood that was shed. That in your body being broken and your blood being shed, you modeled radical servitude and sacrifice. You modeled the upside-down kingdom to us. And so this morning, as we partake of the elements, help us to check our hearts and to repent of any time that we've even followed you or committed ourselves to you more for what we get out of it rather than simply just who you are. And help us to respond like Mary with extravagant worship and adoration and devotion to our Lord because of who you are. Let us partake of the bread here this morning. Let us partake of the cup. Can we sing that song again, You're All I Want, that chorus? And I want us to just lift our voice all across this place and worship together as we close. Sing it out, you're all I want this morning. You're all I want. You're all we want, Jesus. We want nothing else. You're all I Nothing in this world satisfies us like you. You're all I want. Help me know you are near. Help me know you are near. Sing it out, you're all I want. You're all I want. No one else, Jesus. You're all I've ever needed. You're all I want. Help me know you are near. Help me know you.
anything. Maybe if you're wrestling with the, the legalist side of things, the self-righteous, pious heart, or maybe you're here and you know you're bound by sin. You know that you need to be forgiven so much and you feel the, what we would say is the Holy Spirit stirring you or challenging you or convicting you right now. I would encourage you to respond. And we have people here that would love to pray with you and lead you in a prayer of what it means to follow Jesus and make him Lord of your life. I say this so often that it's not easy, but it's the greatest thing you will ever do. Following Jesus is not easy, but it's the greatest thing you will ever do. Because he is the true desire of our heart. He is the affection of our souls. The rest of you here this morning, I want to encourage you that this week live in such a way where you are being extravagant in your devotion and your love for the Jesus that you serve. I, I, I don't want to be heavy in the sense of morbid, but, but I, I want to say we have to live like today could be our last day. We never know. Not in a scared, frightful, fearful way, but in a, I want to make the most of today. I want to make the essential things the essential things. I want to reprioritize what I do in my life. I want to make today matter. Amen? I want to make this moment count because we never know when he will call us home. Bless you. Have an incredible, incredible week. We're looking forward to some great things in the near future. Bless you.